bow our heads in prayer. May only the truth be spoken here, and only the truth received. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's a delight to be with you this morning. I want to thank uh, Father David for uh, inviting me to preach at this uh, last Sunday in our uh, our old building, the building that we've been in for almost nine years now, and uh, it's uh, it's just such a joy to, to be able to, to bring the word for you. But here we are on the first day of a new year, uh, with all its promise and hopes, and it's also the, the last day, as I just mentioned, of our worship in this building, and uh, it feels strange, doesn't it, to, to, be, to be heading out. I think they've been good years that we've been here. Uh, I can't begin to say how thankful I am for the, the generosity that Ambassador has shown in welcoming us here and letting us share their home. Uh, they were uh, certainly at the time a, a real answer to prayer. God has been good to us. He's brought us through the, the difficult days of trials and loss, and I, when I say trials, I mean literally trials and loss. <laughs> He's brought us new people, new brothers and sisters and in Christ, and given us grace as we've grieved the passing of old ones. He's seen us through a, a change of leadership, through my retirement and the arrival of our wonderful new rector, Father David, who I have to say is everything that I was praying for. And of course, more recently, we've welcomed our curate, Josiah, who's breathed a, a breath of fresh air into our children and youth ministry. God is good. All the time. God is good. We've been on quite a journey since leaving our a journey. There we go. That's one stumble for today. We've been on quite a journey since leaving our old home on Wyandotte Street. And like the Magi of our gospel reading this morning, we've, we've learned that what really matters isn't where you've come from or what you've left behind, but who you're following and where you're going. One of my favorite carols this time of year is We Three Kings. It paints a picture of three monarchs from the mysterious east, Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar, coming to present their gifts before the newborn king, and then to bow down and worship him. And of course, the, the part about them being kings and the names that we've given them are all the stuff of later speculation and imagination. But I still love this hymn because of what it proclaims about Jesus and the worship that he deserves. And that's what our gospel passage this morning is really about. The main focus, the star of the show, if you will, is not the Magi, but Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Messiah. Now there are at least five truths that Matthew wants us to see in this passage about Jesus and about worship. 
First, that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and should be honored as such. Second, Jesus is to be worshipped not just by Jews, but by all the nations of the world, symbolized by these wise men from the East. Third, God actually orchestrates the universe in such a way as to make his Son known and worshipped. Fourth, Jesus is disturbing to people who do not want to worship him and sparks opposition for those who do. And fifthly, worshipping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. So let's dig in. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and should be honored as such. Verse 2 opens with an amazing statement that tells us clearly who this story is really about. The Magi, these travelers from the east, arrive in Jerusalem and start asking, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Matthew wants us to see right away that this child was born to be king, king of the Jews. Now, on its own, that's not all that startling. Somewhere alive in Canada today, there are probably at least two or three children or teens who are going to be prime minister of Canada someday. But there's no great search going on to try and figure out who they are or to try and honor them. But the Magi had something else in mind when they asked about this new king of the Jews. And we get a hint as to what that is in verses 3 and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, or the Messiah, was to be born. Herod was already acknowledged by Rome as king of the Jews and had held that title for almost 40 years. But no one called him the Messiah. You see, the Messiah wasn't just another king. He was the long-awaited, God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule, bring in the end of history, establish the kingdom of God, and never die or lose his reign. We're not sure why the wise men would be expecting this. Maybe it was something they'd come to through their astrological calculations. Perhaps they'd worked it out from some of the Jewish books left behind in Daniel's day, presuming they were from Babylon. Or maybe it was a combination of the two. What we do know is that Herod got the message. These guys weren't just looking for a mere human successor to the Judean throne. They were looking for the final king. The king to end all kings. Which really caught him off guard. And so he calls in the experts, the chief priests and the scribes, and asks them where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And, of course, they quote Micah 5, 2, and 6. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least 
among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. No big surprise there. Nothing too extraordinary, but that's because the scribes were simply answering the question that Herod had asked. Where? If you are dealing with a tyrant like Herod, you learn not to say more than what you're asked. (laughs) But what if he had asked them who? That could have gotten a whole lot more interesting. You see, they likely would have gone on to read further in Micah chapter 5. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Do you see? This king doesn't just bring into existence in the womb of his mother Mary. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Whereas the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And his rule wouldn't just be limited to Israel. He will be great to the ends of the earth. So that's Matthew's first point. This Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and should be honored or worshipped as such. Which leads us to the second truth in this passage. Jesus is to be worshipped not just by Jews, but by all the nations of the world, as symbolized by these wise men from the East. Now you may have noticed that Matthew doesn't say anything about the journey to Bethlehem, Jesus being born in a stable, or the visit of the shepherds. Instead, he jumps immediately to the, after the genealogy, he jumps immediately to the arrival of these foreigners coming from the east, possibly Babylon, as I said before, to worship Jesus. Verse 1 says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, obviously Matthew thought this was pretty important. And it is. Because you see, these guys are Gentiles. The first worshippers aren't Jews, but pagans, court magicians, astrologers unclean. So here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we see the nations coming to worship Jesus. Do you remember how Matthew, the gospel of Matthew ends? Jesus' last words are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He opens with this message and he closes with it to make it unmistakably clear that Jesus is a universal Messiah for all the nations. And he provides this story of the wise men because it was evidence of this truth. One of the repeated prophecies of the Jewish scriptures was that the nations and their kings 
would come and acknowledge the awaited Messiah as their ruler. And this is probably where the idea that the wise men were kings came from. Isaiah 60, verse 3, for example, declares, Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Excuse me. So Matthew wants us to see, and he he provides proof, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the King, and not just for Israel, but for all nations, for people like us. The third thing we see in this passage is that God actually orchestrates the universe in such a way as to make his son known and worshipped. This is what he wants above all, that his son should be known and worshipped. You may remember that a couple of weeks ago, Father David pointed out that the genealogy that begins the book of Matthew is there to say that Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. I was listening. (laughs) He was the Father's plan, his only plan. Paul tells us the same thing in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Or as the NIV puts it, when the set time had fully come, God had a plan. God set a time. He knew from before creation that he would send his son into the world as our Savior. And he knew when he would do it, too. And he revealed that plan, or at least some of it, to these magi in the language they understood by writing it in the heavens. Now, we don't know exactly what this star was. The most likely explanation is a conjunction of planets. But we don't know that for sure. We don't know how it got them from the east to Jerusalem. Matthew just says that they saw the star in the east when it rose. And then they came to Jerusalem. We don't know how it went before then on the short journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, as verse 9 tells us, or how it came to rest over the place where the child was. We're simply not told how all that happened. But what we do know is that God had a plan and that he ordered things in such a way that that star would appear when it needed to and tell them what they needed to know. Now, this is in no way a recommendation of astrology. In fact, the Bible forbids that for us as believers. What it does tell us is the lengths to which God will go to make his son known and bring the world to worship him. He actually orchestrated the stars and planets to communicate his truth And he wrote that in the ordered movement of the stars and planets from the very beginning so that this star would appear at just the right time. As David tells us in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens 
declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. These magi, these foreigners, didn't just happen to stumble into Bethlehem by coincidence. God guided them there. And he did it to fulfill his plan that all nations, all peoples, might come to worship his son Jesus. That was his plan then, and it's still his plan today. God wants everyone to worship Jesus. He wants your unbelieving friends, your Muslim neighbors, your Hindu co-workers, your obnoxious uncle, the guy that was at the dinner at Christmas, your children and their children to know, love, and worship him. The Magi came and saw. But as Jesus commands in Matthew 28, 19, we are to go and tell. Which brings us to point number four. Jesus is disturbing to people who do not worship him, who do not want to worship him. And he draws out opposition for those who do. There are two kinds of people in this passage who do not want to worship Jesus. The first kind are the people who do not want anything to do with him. They're represented by the chief priests and the scribes. Do you ever wonder what was going through their minds after Herod summoned them and asked where the Messiah was to be born? They knew the answer, and they didn't hesitate in letting him know. But then what? They just went back to business as usual. Why didn't they go to Bethlehem and check it out for themselves? Matthew says in verse 3 that when Herod heard about the arrival of these foreigners looking for a new king and a uh, uh, king of the Jews, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem was troubled as well. But not the chief priests and scribes. They just weren't interested. They kept an outward show of piety, but the fact is they really didn't want to worship the true God. And the second kind, <clears throat> kind of people who do not want to worship Jesus are the kind who are deeply threatened by him. Herod, although he never would have admitted it, was scared of losing his throne. And so he lies to the Magi in an attempt to try to use them and find this newborn threat. And when he, when he does find him, he adopts a, uh, he, he'll adopt a, Sorry, when he doesn't find him, he adopts a, a cluster bomb strategy to eliminate him by committing mass murder. Those are the two kinds of opposition that the birth of Jesus elicited. And there's still the kinds of opposition that Jesus and his worshipers face today. Indifference and hostility. Those are certainly among the reactions you may face if you try to share the gospel with someone you know. And the world does its best to try and draw us into one of those camps. But our passage this morning calls us to be like the Magi, to hear God's call, to consider his son, Jesus, and having met him, to bow down in worship. 
Which brings us to the fifth and final truth in this story. Matthew is calling us to be like the Magi and to worship Jesus. But what is worship? Based on this passage, I think Matthew would define it as joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. Now, there are four parts to that definition, so let's have a quick look at each. First, the Magi ascribe authority to Jesus by calling him the King of the Jews. Look at verse 2. Where is he who was born King of the Jews? Second, the Magi ascribe dignity to Jesus by falling down before him. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That's what you do when you recognize someone as your sovereign, and even more so when you recognize them as God. Third, notice their joy as they ascribed this authority and dignity. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, that's a, an interesting wording on Matthew's part there, isn't it? This wasn't just some run-of-the-mill joy. They didn't just rejoice with joy or rejoice with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were over the moon because the one they had journeyed so far to find, the one who had been promised through the prophets long ago and whose coming God had announced in the stars, had come and they were about to see him. And that tells me that real worship is not just ascribing authority and dignity to Christ like someone in a, a royal court who's required to bow down before a king. No, it's doing it joyfully from a heart that is stirred by the greatness, the holiness, the goodness, and the beauty of Christ. And the fourth element of worship we see here is that it involves the giving of sacrificial gifts. The Magi brought what was precious and costly. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, when David came to the threshing floor of Araunah and asked to, to borrow it so that he could present an offering to the Lord, Araunah was so honored that he tried to, to give David the oxen and the wood for the sacrifice. No, just, just take it, my king. But David refused the gift and said, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Worship, you see, is meant to be costly. It involves the, the sacrifice of our time and our energy. Sometimes, such as when we're fasting, it can cost our comfort. And it should involve the giving up of what is precious to us, our treasure. You see, this is a way of saying to the Lord, all that I have has come from you. But I come to you not for what I can get, but for you yourself. I want more of you. 
Now I offer these gifts back to you because you are my treasure, my joy, and not these things. And it's you I desire more than anything. Like the Magi, we've left our old home and embarked on a journey. It wasn't easy, but God has called us not to this place as lovely as it has been, or even to St. Teresa's, but to Him. He's called us to seek and follow Jesus where He leads. He's called us to bow down before Him in worship and confess as our Gospel teaches, Lord Jesus, You are the Messiah, the King of Israel. All nations will come and bow down before you. God directs all things in the universe to see that you are worshipped. So whatever opposition I may encounter, I joyfully ascribe authority and dignity to you and bring my gifts to say that you and you alone are the desire of my heart. This move is an exciting one. God has wonderfully provided for us, and we can be thankful. But let's always remember, Jesus is our true home. He himself is the bright morning star, the one to whom all praise, worship, and honor is due. May it be so. May it be done. Amen. Amen.